This excerpt from a New America NYC event was recorded on August 5th, 2015, and is titled, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and features Ari Berman, Debo Adigbile, Maya Wiley, and Julian Zelzer. Every time a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act was signed, and Ari alluded to this, a Republican president signed every reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. I had the opportunity to be at the signing ceremony at the White House. It was a fascinating ceremony for a lot of reasons. It was a happy day. The vote had been 98-0 in the Senate in support of the Voting Rights Act, an act that one of the justices would later, a vote that one of the justices would, would later try and use as evidence of the need for the court to intervene. But at that signing ceremony, there, there, were, there was an extraordinary thing. Don King was there, and you can't miss Don King. Um, and he was waving a, a fan with an American flag on it. And Catherine Harris of Florida fame was there because she was then in Congress. And so I was, I was watching the president sign this bill that we had fought so hard to be reauthorized. I was looking around, I was seeing Don King, so I was having images of, of fighting and prize fights, and then I was seeing Catherine Harris watch, watch President Bush sign it. And what President Bush said is, I'm signing this act and we're gonna defend it in court. And that's not the, the thing that you necessarily wanna hear. I mean, yes, you wanna hear <laughs> that the United States is gonna defend the laws of the United States, that's positive. Um, you know, we, we took that as a positive sign, but the fact that the pattern had been so consistent that there was enactment and then legal challenge. It, you know, the president literally is taking that on in the signing statement. And what was dangerous about the first case was that it was immediately after the Obama election. And so the narrative in the, even though that was, that occurred after the reauthorization like of the Voting heard, Rights like Act, week, it, it, was, heard it was heard on the 100th day of the Obama presidency. It was the 100th day of the Obama presidency. And so in the courtroom was this atmospheric that we had overcome, in a sense, and that the act was old and stale and maybe not necessary, and that this extraordinary moment was sufficient to brush away all of the structural impediments that remained. What I thought was gonna be different the second time is that that narrative that we had overcome was, was no longer really plausible because the push against voting had become so dramatic that courts comprised of judges nominated and confirmed by different senates and presidents had been knocking away voting measures under the provision that was being challenged. And yet the court uh, struck it as, as, as we know. And so I think that it, it could have made a difference if the um, salience of race in America um, had been more front and center in the way that it has percolated up um, perhaps it would have made a difference, but at the end of the day, it's hard, it's hard to know. Yeah, I want to turn it over to Q&A. Uh, in the Selma kind of moment of civil rights history, the, what civil rights activists were saying all the time, including to the president, was you know, they wouldn't wait any longer uh, for the Voting Rights Act for the reasons you're talking about, meaning uh, King would say this, that everything else was contingent and the Civil Rights Act was uh, not going to survive unless this fundamental right to vote was enshrined by the federal government. And so all the other policies rested on this one right. And it was a very powerful argument, I think, and it was very much on the mind of the activists in terms of 
why Selma, the protests had to happen, why the legislation had to happen. And I think it's still, I think, very relevant uh, to, to all the issues we face today. So we have some time for Q&A. Uh, and I think there's a floating mic. So just raise your hand up high and the mic will appear right before you. Thank you all for this wonderful panel. I, I mean, I'm just astounded that we're still struggling so hard and the retrenchment has occurred. What I wanted to ask you, Ari, is you touched on something uh, on the Leonard Lopez show that, this afternoon about Florida. Oh, yeah, I, li I listen. <laughs> Absolutely. Stay awake. Um, I wondered about um, Gore, Gore v. Bush. Yeah. Um, when uh, the congressional black... Um, caucus and uh, the NAACP all came all about um, the disenfranchisement of all these people in Florida. Gore did, uh, did not pursue it, and it was swept under the table. And I, when you said that, you know, the percentage by which Bush won, quote, unquote, um, after that, could we still call ourselves a democracy? And why wasn't it pursued? Because it was such an important and scary moment. If there was a problem, why did we have regime change? Why didn't we wait? Thanks. Well, I, I think race was an issue that played such a dominant role in Florida, but no one wanted to address it. And I think that wasn't just the Republican Party that was pursuing um, race-based efforts to keep people from voting, but it was also the Democratic Party that was afraid of touching this issue, that it would be too controversial. And what you see uh, in the Bush v. Gore arguments, the argument before the Supreme Court about what to do, that uh, the way the court decides this decision is it says that counting all the balance the ballots in Florida, all the disputed ballots, would be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, something that was ironically passed to provide full citizenship to African Americans. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg says in a draft of her dissent that if there was any equal protection in Florida, any equal protection violation in Florida, it was because African American voters were disproportionately prevented from voting. And Justice Scalia, her closest friend on the court, objected to what he called her quote unquote Al Sharpton footnote. And she took it out of the brief. So that was the larger environment that we were dealing with. And there's this very surreal scene that I talk about in my book where Gore, as president of the Senate at the time, is presiding over Florida's electors uh, in the Congress. And the Congressional Black Caucus stand up and they say, Mr. Vice President, there are gross errors, gross violations of the Voting Rights Act in Florida. And Gore, one by one, rules them out of order as the presiding chair of the Senate. And I just kept thinking, that must have been such a heartbreaking moment for Al Gore to have to, to have to do that. But it also just showed the larger failure of the Democratic Party in Florida, the larger failure for them to stand up and to fight for something. This is what made people so angry about the Democratic Party for so many years. They didn't stand for anything. Um, and, and that's still a problem um, today. And so I think this Florida was one of these issues. There was this, there was this. I think the answer to your question is, you know, Florida is one of these issues where race was just swept under the rug. And I, I think, you know, unfortunately, we, we like to think that we fixed the problem, but in Ohio in 2004, uh, we saw seven-hour lines uh, in black communities in Cleveland and Columbus. So we, we clearly didn't fix the problem, and the problem in Florida has actually gotten a lot worse, not better. A lot of questions. Yes. <laughs> um, 
So, so thank you for all of your remarks. It's been um, incredibly insightful and um, interesting. So I think all of you have commented in one way or another about how incredibly toxic it is to have a, a current modern day GOP, at least strands of the GOP, that are committed to disenfranchisement as, you know, a matter of political strategy, that they really see it as part in, in their incentive to disenfranchise large segments of the electorate. And so I was hoping, like, you know, to, if wondering if you could comment more on like whether um, there are reasons to hope that other parts of the GOP or there are elements in the GOP that are committed to, to, to departing from that path, you know, and part of what's motivating my question is, you know, I myself do a lot of immigration work. And of course we know in recent years, sort of moderate um, elements of the GOP, Lindsey Graham, McCain, whatever, were actually committed to things like a path to citizenship and implicit in that is a conception that, you know, you're not selling the party out, like that, there's a more expansive conception of what it is to be a conservative, what it is to be a member of the Republican Party. We could actually maybe win those votes. <laughs> and so, you know, are, are we, so, so, so how, how stuck are we in this, where you have one major political party that's actually committed to disenfranchisement as a political strategy, even if it's so um, contrary to our fundamental commitments to the vote? So. Well, um, I think the short answer is I don't have, I, I always have hope. Um, hope in the Kierkegaardian sense of <laughs> a passion for what is possible. And that's not inevitability. So, uh, you know, I think that there are more opportunities at very local level um, to actually have impact on Republicans who are much more interested in protecting democracy. And because uh, I do think it is a shared American value, despite your political party, as a value. And that what one of the, one of the opportunities that in the voter suppression context that um, I think we did not necessarily have enough resources to do, but could have, is really organized multiracial coalition around the impacts of suppression because it's like fishing for tuna. You catch some dolphin by accident. <laughs> so when, you know, so the point being that there are like little old white ladies were getting disenfranchised. Um, you know, I, so I mean the disparate impact was racialized, but it didn't mean that only people of color were impacted. And I think the same thing on, immigration is a really great example as well. It's like not only Latino or Asian, when we're talking about creating more opportunities and more pathways for folks to participate in society. So I think, but I think it's localized because I think there, there is a, a strategy problem that we are not going to break by trying to appeal to a greater value. But if we had more Republicans in local places, that we would have more opportunity to, to, to do that. Yeah, and, and I would just add that voter suppression is a very short-term strategy, particularly in a country where the demographics are changing. So on the one hand, the changing demographics mean that we are gonna keep having these fights over political power. On the second thing, if the demographics keep changing as rapidly as they can, you can't ultimately keep everyone from voting or even enough people from voting that eventually uh, you're gonna have to reach out. And I do think that there is a realization among some of the Republican candidates for president, people like Jeb Bush, for example, that you have to figure out some ways to bring new people in. Rand Paul has been talking about this now and is supporting some things like rolling back felon disenfranchisement laws. That's a, that's a step in a good direction. We also saw that some states held their fire in 2015 that otherwise might not have. For example, Nevada, a state that flipped from uh, Democratic to Republican for the first time in 1929. I was sure that Nevada, as one of the first pieces of legislation they would take up, would be a strict voter ID bill. They did try to sign it, 
they did try to pass it, but it actually didn't pass and it didn't go through. The governor, who was more of a moderate Republican, signaled he wasn't so crazy about this issue. And I think there's two things that are going on. States who are passing these things realize that A, they're in for a much bigger political battle now in the legislature than they, they thought they would. And two, they know they're gonna get sued. And, and for some states like Texas, that's great. They love getting sued. They want the Obama administration to sue them on everything. For other states, they might not want to go through this process. They might not want to have them taint um, their record on other issues. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, you know Alabama, you know, not the most racially progressive state in the country. Uh, you know, the governor there took his, the Confederate flag down almost immediately uh, after Charleston. And what was not noted uh, in the coverage was that a Google plant was moving in that very day. And he didn't want the Google announcement made next to the Confederate flag. And so to some extent, uh, th there is an awareness that the country is becoming more progressive. Uh, and you can't just play uh, out of a, a 19th century, an early 19th century um, or late 20th century um, playbook here. So I, I do think there's something of a growing realization in the Republican Party that they, they need to change their strategy on this. I think if I can just jump in, there's a moral, there's a political, and there's a legal element to how change would happen. So the moral back to 64 and 65 is just an awareness that the techniques of suppression are no longer legitimate yeah. uh, and no longer uh, feasible for a party to support. We haven't reached that with uh, voter ID and anti-fraud suppression. The second is political, and I think that's important uh, in that when par parties can compete to become more liberal, that's how civil rights happened. So Democrats got scared because there were a lot of Republicans saying, we'll do it if you can't. Yeah. This is part of the Kennedy administration's calculus when there were some Republicans actually started to move out front uh, in, in Congress. And I think with issues like immigration, uh, where there are a lot of Republicans who are not on board with the restrictionist wing of the party, but can't control them yet. Uh, you can imagine an incentive uh, where they'd want to bring more voters in rather than leaving them out. And then the legal part is simply the composition of the court. Uh, and the court you faced was not hospitable uh, to this, but you know, that can change. And certainly with the fair housing, it's a dramatic difference in how they're interpreting civil rights law. Uh, and maybe, and maybe that will change. At least how Kennedy, but ultimately the ruling right, right. kind of legitimated a pillar that's been knocked out with voting rights. This has been a great panel. Um, I think you've raised so many things about what the context is, what the lens is that we ought to be looking at these issues for. I was, uh, and several of us are here tonight, who worked in the Deep South in the 60s doing voter registration. And I, I think one of the things that is important to me that you've raised tonight, um, and I'm interested in next steps on this, is to take the lens that really takes us back to abolition. Because yes, we were in the Deep South. Yes, that's where slavery um, had this, in some senses a deep history, but New York, we had a history too. Um, but it, to me, there's always been in the United States a, a, a view that elite people should be the ones controlling the government. So while the demographics are hopeful, we could get a bunch, a few decades that could be very bad as those demographics take hold. And I'm concerned that 
the emphasis is not just looking back 50 years, but it's looking back 150 years, because all this is about how black Americans are allowed to live in this country, and whether we have a democracy or not, as you keep saying. So what's the next step to be able to raise the attention to how deep these problems go, how profoundly anti-democratic these forces are? Thank you. Next steps, we can wrap it up on that. All of you. I, so one, I, I want to thank you all for that work because I, as we all know from the history, it was incredibly important to have white allies who were willing to go to the South and um, put your lives on the line right up next to black folks. So thank you for that. Uh, so I think we've talked about some. I think uh, it is incredibly important that we organize and support organizing. Um, in communities, and that's one of the exciting things about Black Lives Matter and, so, and Moral Mondays and a range of things that we're seeing. I think that what we need to do with that is also make sure we are channeling it into electoral politics because um, there's no question that what we have to do is both build uh, the, all of the sport around people getting on the ballot, but also to be people who are running for office. Uh, and to insist that those who are running for office actually represent some of the values uh, and the policies and the interests that we hold. There have been some efforts to do that. Um, and I think one of the things that some of us are concerned about is we need to build a greater pipeline that reflects the changing demographics as we're supporting folks' ability not just to vote, if that's incredibly important, but actually to sit in the seats that get elected. Well, so one of the reasons why I wanted um, to write this book was that uh, so much of civil rights history is told through the context of uh, essentially ending with the uh, dramatic victory in Selma uh, and the passage of the Voting Rights Act or ending with the death of Dr. King in 1968 as a kind of broader death of the movement. So it's either told as a story of a remarkable culmination and victory, or it's told as a, as a story of, uh, of this staggering and shattering defeat. And, and the question for me was always, what happened after? Uh, and, and so um, if Selma is just going to be something you know, in the history books and we don't understand what happened after, then we can't really learn from it. And so what I wanted to do, you know, knowing that the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act uh, was coming was to tell the history of what happened after 1965 so it wouldn't be a period piece. So people would understand that there were decades of struggle after, that the fight for voting rights didn't end in 1965, but a whole new fight actually um, began. And so what I'm seeing um, is you know, a new generation of people that are learning from civil rights history and applying it uh, to today. And when you, when you look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter, when you look at what's happening with Moral Mondays, I mean, they're very conscious of, it's not the 60s anymore, but that they're studying these movements to understand what they can pull out of it and how that history is relevant today at, at the same time that we're facing um, a lot of parallels. So that's kind of a big picture thing in, in terms of um, so journalistically. The other thing I'll just say in terms of actual policies that we could do uh, in terms of um, expanding voting rights, I mean, I think, you know, uh, as I mentioned, automatic voter registration. So the fact that people would automatically be registered to vote. People who are registered turn out at a much, obviously, are much, much, much more likely to vote. That's a prerequisite for voting. And once you get registered, uh, you're actually uh, quite likely to, to turn out and vote. Uh, the, the second thing is things like early voting, same-day registration. So making it more convenient um, for people to vote. And I, I also think we have to 
to realize that you know, racial discrimination in voting still exists. And whether it exists be, because uh, legislators are motivated by race or whether or rather it exists because they're motivated by partisanship with blacks and Hispanics and other minority groups identifying for, with the Democratic Party, it doesn't really matter. This is still happening in places like North Carolina and Texas. So as long as we have a gutted Voting Rights Act, I believe that we're going to have a gutted democracy. And so uh, I think on the 50th anniversary of the law, uh, it's critically important to realize uh, that this thing didn't end in 1965, that it worked for decades, and in fact, uh, it's still very much needed today. There's not much to add to that, uh, but so I will, I, I will just say that at the end of the day, my, my view is that there is power in the idea behind the Voting Rights Act which is about a minority inclusion principle. It's about a people that are saying that they want to bring everybody in to engage in self-governance. And that's a very powerful idea. I think there's broad support for that idea. If you asked most Americans if they agree with that, at a high level, people would raise their hands. And so that power is ultimately going to be stronger than the exclusion principles that are being practiced right now. And what we need to do is to have more models of the inclusion and democratic expansion so that we should not just be talking about the suppression that's going on. We should show the examples of how you bring more people in and what inclusion looks like. Looks like. And there are states that are trying this. And that ultimately is where the conversation is joined, where the American people have a choice between the pattern of exclusion and the pattern of inclusion. And then we ask the people, which do you choose as Americans? Thank you very much. This was a great panel. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.